Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you in your work for His Kingdom. Good afternoon. I'm grateful to Alpha Crucis for providing the Alpha Crucis sponsorship of this Alpha Crucis sponsored lecture. Um, it was $150 per mention, wasn't it, you said? Um, yeah, Alpha Crucis. Good place. Just remember, Alpha Crucis, right? Um, so uh, a couple of days ago, I got to kick this thing off, and now we're the faithful remnant whose flights didn't leave early. And uh, I, what I tried to do at the start was to, to have us think together about what our learning trajectory might be for the three days. I invited you to think of a practice in your teaching or your educational work that was going to be different as a a result of you being here so that you didn't just leave with inspiration because when you just leave with inspiration, what you tend to reap is guilt. Uh, And now I've got to finish the conference and one possible model for finishing the conference is to wind us up into a vaporous cloud of vague inspiration to finish um, so that we can uh, can all go away and feel guilty a couple of weeks later because nothing's really changed in the way the school runs. So I'm partly strategically trying to avoid that here, which is why the talk this afternoon is about the boring stuff, right? It's not about the inspiring stuff. It's not about the big ideas and the beautiful dreams of visions. It's about the boring stuff. It's about the grading that you left behind at school, the homework you've got to assign, the, uh, just these basic school processes that are going to look the same when you get back to your school after this sort of peak experience at this beautiful convention center. Because the learning challenge in front of us right now is how we get from here to there, right? How you take this experience of being overstimulated for three days um, and relate it back to all of those routines that are going to suck you right back into being who you were three days ago. So boring stuff. Here's something not so boring. Um, In the technology study that I've mentioned to you, one of our student focus group participants told us this story. The student said, a partner and I for our biology project, we had to research green fluorescent protein. It was super interesting. And it's kind of boring if you had surface level, but we were doing research or whatever. (laughs) And green fluorescent protein is fairly new, so the people who discovered it and made advancements in it are still alive, and all of their information's online. And you can email almost every one of them. So we emailed. And we got a response from a dude who's the head of the department at Rutgers University. And he just went off on so much stuff. So that was just crazy that he responded. And that he was interested enough. And he invited me and my partner to one of his classes. I was, sorry, I can't make it quite out to the Northeast. But it was still really, really cool and just really exciting. This student was really pumped about an experience they'd had in school that was a little out of the ordinary, where they were able to use digital technology to connect with the researchers who had discovered the thing they were learning about, um, have some dialogue about it, and they weren't restricted to the resources that they had immediately in their classroom. Now, this relates to something that I mentioned in passing on the first morning. Do you remember the the teacher who was teaching the apologetics class, and the students brought in the newspaper report that was uh, arguing that a mosque should be built? Right? And the students were upset because the Christian responses to it were really ugly. And remember, at the end of that, he said, so we talked about how do we respond? What can you do using this tool to bring change to the world for Christ by bringing some grace? That wasn't an accidental phrase because that phrase to bring change to the world for Christ was from the school's mission statement. And everybody in the school was pretty familiar with their mission statement. Um, 
In fact, the whole version of it, and I have to tell you this is not actually the school's mission statement because we've worked hard to preserve the anonymity of the schools that we studied. So it's like a made-up mission statement that's in the spirit of the real one. They're also not really called modern Christian schools. Um, but the mission statement says roughly, the modern Christian schools community exists to prepare the minds and nurture the lives of a student body that will bring change to the world for Christ. And one of the things we heard a lot from administrators was that one of the things they loved about having digital technology was that maybe it would help them break down the walls of the school. They felt like in the past they'd been this little parochial bubble, uh, this little enclosed community, and maybe technology gave them the chance to teach their students to reach out into the world and make a difference as Christians. And so we did some survey work on this, and we found that three-quarters of the teachers thought that adopting digital technology had helped the school impact the world for Christ in ways that weren't possible before. And a majority of parents as well were optimistic about that. When we asked people how often teachers are actually encouraging students to do this, how often are teachers trying to engage students with their impact on the world beyond the school, again, 86% of students thought that was happening at least monthly, 96% of parents thought that was happening at least monthly. Teachers were a little more skeptical. Um, and that's already a little bit interesting right there. But students were able to tell us some cool stories. There was the green fluorescent protein story, and there was the Ghana story. And other students said, I have a world cultures class, and I just emailed someone across the world in Ghana, and I talked to them about my project and how we can fight the problem of stereotyping of people with disabilities in Ghana. So we're already bringing change to the world, and we're just in high school. Students in a Christian high school experiencing a learning activity where they maybe get to influence the experience of people with disabilities in Ghana. That's pretty cool. It's better than shopping. <laughs> so the surveys told us that people believed this was a thing and they thought it was happening. The focus group research told us that people told us stories about this happening and some of them were quite inspiring. But we started noticing after a little while that we were hearing the same story more than once in different focus groups, that the same stories were circling back round, which is why it's good to use more than one research method and not just trust your first set of results. So the next thing we did was we conducted classroom observations to see if we could actually observe the mating behavior in the wild, as it were. And um, so we conducted 74 classroom observations. Now, what classroom observations meant here was that 74 times at random intervals during the school year, we showed up unannounced at the school. We agreed with the school that we would show up unannounced, so it wasn't like, not cosmically unannounced, but. <laughs> and we picked a lesson at random, and we went and watched it. Um, and we observed it, and we coded it, and we made records. So the teacher didn't find out until that morning that we were coming. The reason we did that was because we didn't want people preparing their best class to show us when we came to watch. We wanted to see what normally happened in the school on a day when nobody knew that somebody was going to come and check. So 74 classroom observations. During those classroom observations, we watched 479 teaching and learning activities. How many of those activities do you think we were able to, say, connected students with the world outside the school using um, actually at all? Six. And of those six, several of them weren't using digital technology. Um, so it was actually an even smaller number that was actually... So these, these wonderful stories, you know, really good stories. There were some really good things happening. So you've got to start being careful here. First, I don't want to underestimate the possible educational value of a single striking experience. 
right? Sometimes you have one experience, it stays with you for months, it changes the way you think about things. And this is, I think, part of what we're seeing on the surveys where the students and the parents are saying, yeah, this is happening, this is, this is changing things. But when we actually went and looked for it, we found it was really, really hard to find this happening on a daily basis. So there's two kinds of learning going on here. There's the striking, occasional, important experience that might have a big impact. I'm not discounting that, but there's also the kind of formation that Jefferson was talking about the first morning of the conference, the stuff that happens daily, weekly, monthly, those rhythms and routines, right? That's formative too. And when we looked at the rhythms and the routines, we spent 74 hours trying to catch it, and we couldn't find a whole lot. So this, this, this beautiful, inspiring mission statement language and this conviction that something really important was happening here, not totally false, but I wonder what kind of formation's happening in the other 473 learning activities that maybe don't quite so convincingly instantiate this, this vision. So regardless of what you think about the vision, you might not like the school's mission statement. That's okay, that's your prerogative. But again, I'm interested here, like on the first day, in the connection between the vision that's stated and the practices that are used to implement that vision. So this is why I want to focus our attention in this session on the boring stuff. The other 473, not the six. Conferences are sometimes about the six. Um, and I want you to go back to school and think about the 473. It almost sounds biblical, didn't it? Jesus healed 479. Only six came back and said thank you, something like that. Um, <laughs> so the boring stuff. What's the boring stuff? I mean things like this. Um, now you think that says homework. Um, that's because you're making assumptions already about the word. If you actually Google Home W, you'll find a vacation rentals website and um, there's also some stuff about home wins in some sports league. Uh, but I did actually intend homework, but I put it incomplete up there just to illustrate that your brain fills in things, that you have assumptions that you bring. You think you already know what this word means, and I suspect you think you already know what homework is. You've had it done to you, you've done it to other people. Why wouldn't you know what homework is? <laughs> now here's the thing with homework. Um, a few years ago, I was having breakfast with some teachers at the school that my youngest daughter attended. Actually, all three of my kids attended, but she was still at the school, um, Grand Rapids Christian High School. And some of us were just talking over breakfast, and I got off on a bit of a rant about my experience of my youngest daughter's years in high school, because it was my feeling that the biggest single negative influence on the quality of our family life was not Lady Gaga, it was not the evil secular world, it was not the internet, it was not social media, it was not progressives, it was the Christian school. And the way that worked was I'd started noticing that when we had a school vacation, I got my daughter back. That in the vacations, I had a teenage daughter who was articulate, who was interested in communicating with us, who had a number of topics of conversation, who wanted to share things with us, who wanted to have discussions. During the school semester, I had a teenage daughter who was monosyllabic, who rarely interacted with us, who grunted a few times, sometimes over supper, and left the table. And I don't think that's because she was being a rebellious teenager. I think it's because she was getting up at 6-something in the morning to be ready to leave the house at 7.15 to get the school bus. She was in school by 8. She was in school until 3.30. She came home for 4. 
She chilled for an hour till we got home and we had supper. I'm not gonna blame her for taking an hour's rest out of the day. Then we had supper. I don't feel like talking about my day over supper a lot of days, especially if they've been really intense. After supper, she would have three or four hours of homework. And she would head off to her room with a laptop and a pile of books. And about half past nine, 10 o'clock in the evening, she would reappear in the family room and say goodnight and go try and get some sleep before getting up at something after six and getting the school bus at 7.15, rinse, repeat. And I started thinking, you know, when my daughter's 16, 17, 18 years old, would this be a good time for me as a parent to be having good communication with her? Might that be a good thing? And the single biggest thing keeping that from happening is school. And perhaps the element of school that's doing the most for this is the simple fact that almost every homework that I have seen assigned to my children in school was designed to be done alone. So if we're going to reimagine a practice, let's think about why homework has to be done solo. Because the only role that I was ever given as a parent in my children's homework was either to be the police officer to make sure that it got done, or to be the cheat to make sure that, to help them get it done on time if the teachers overwhelmed them. Um, I was never offered much more of a constructive role than that as a parent in my children's learning by the school. In fact, the other day I went on a stock photo site and searched for photographs of homework, putting in that as a key word. And you find that photographers know that homework is something that's done alone with a laptop or a book. Now what that means is that as a teacher, you're setting up a practice for your students that's taking them out of family interaction for several hours an evening and sitting them with a laptop or a book after they've just spent all day with you in school. So remember, I'm at breakfast with some of my daughter's teachers and I'm ranting a little over some pancakes. And um, over the next few weeks, some interesting things started happening. One night, we were sitting together in the family room and that's not my family room, that's a stock photo. Um, <laughs> I got way better taste than that, but it's the best I could come up with. And uh, suddenly my daughter appears about quarter to eight, eight o'clock in the evening at the door of the family room looking a little sheepish. And she says, do you guys have some time? Because uh, I got this homework from my religion teacher. And I'm supposed to ask you if you grew up Christian or whether you became Christian at a certain point and like how that was for you, how you experienced that, like at what point you became Christian. Do you have time to talk about that for a bit? Because I've got to sign this thing and take it back for your teacher, for my teacher to say that we... Do you have time to talk about that? Well, all right, just this once. <laughs> uh, don't push your luck. So we, t we chatted about it, and uh, she had to bring that back the next day for the students to compare the conversations they'd had at home in class. Notice this gave me something to talk about with my student that I didn't need a PhD to be able to contribute to. Right? I didn't need to be expert in the school subject. It created a point of dialogue between us about something that was important to learning that wasn't based on teacher expertise. A couple of nights later, she came in, 8 o'clock. She said, you've got time to talk. My, my government teacher says, We've got to, I've got to discuss with you whether you think it's OK for the government to use drones to spy on its citizens. Can we talk about that? A couple of nights later, it was the communications teacher. She said, I've got to give a talk in class. 
got to give a talk in class tomorrow with PowerPoint slides, and, uh, and, and I've got to present it in class. I'm going to get graded on it, but the homework is I've got to give this presentation to you first, and there's this feedback sheet, and you've got to see if you can give me some suggestions as to how to improve it, and I'm supposed to do that with you twice, and you're supposed to give me some tips the first time and see if it gets better the second time, and then the third time is going to be... Have you got time to work on that with me this evening? A few days later, it was the media teacher. <laughs> the homework was... You've got to choose a television show, any television show. Watch it together as a family. Discuss what its values are. Discuss what its worldview is. Discuss whether this is a good way to invest your time, whether it might be worth watching more of it. Bring it back and discuss it in class. I had a chat with that teacher a little while later. He said that after he assigned that homework assignment, he had some parents come in and talk to him in the school. And they said, when you assign that homework to watch the TV show, we spent a whole week as a family trying to find 45 minutes when we were all together in the same place at the same time to watch that TV show, and we failed. So we've realized we're going to have to make some systemic changes in our family life because something's not right. And he said, I was pretty happy about that as an outcome of that homework. Now, you as a teacher have a remarkable amount of cultural power because you are one of the few people in society who can tell other people what to do with their discretionary time, and by and large, they will do it. <laughs> How are you using that cultural power? Are your homework assignments doing anything to strengthen the fabric of your community and the relationships between your parents and their children, your grandparents and their children, your pastors and their congregants? Just think of what homework could do. Now, there are some logistics here. I don't want every one of my teachers assigning one of these homeworks every evening. Um, so you're going to have to actually talk to each other, you know, do things like planning. You're also going to have to think about students who don't have a parent available, either this evening or at all. And you're going to have to think about the rhythms of this. You're going to think about how to, how to make provision for those students. You're going to have to think about how to make it safe for students. There's a few logistical things to think about, but you're teachers. You can do logistics. But what if your homework practices, remember turning the hearts of the fathers to their children? Right? Just think the way the Old Testament finishes. Right? What if you could actually strengthen families just by reimagining homework? We took this, and then a few years later, um, I worked on a project called teachfastly.com. Uh, we spent about a million and a half of foundation money on this project. It's a science teaching, science and Bible teaching resource. There's about 200 lesson plans on this site for teaching about faith and science in science classes or Bible classes. Even if you're not a science teacher, you might find some of the things on there interesting just to look at how teachers went about trying to connect their faith to the way that they were teaching. But we brought this conversation with us, and there's a whole section of that site that's about how to design science homeworks that involve parents in ways that don't make parents feel stupid. And one of the homework assignments that we came up with that's been quite popular in the schools that have tried it was we asked students to go home, find a parent or an adult or some kind of significant other, just go for a walk through your neighborhood. Keep your eyes peeled. Try to notice something you hadn't noticed before. Try to ask a question. Why are different kinds of plants different colored green? Why does concrete crack in the winter? It does in Michigan anyway. Why does light reflect differently off glass from off concrete or wood? Find a question. Then go back home, fire up Wikipedia or science.com, 
and see if you can find some science that has a bearing on the question you just asked. See if you can start learning something about it. Then bring your question and your findings back to class the next day and discuss what you started learning about your environment and how science might actually be connected to understanding the world that you live in and how it might provoke a sense of wonder at the everyday things that surround you. Again, homework, boring stuff. We think we know how to do it. Reimagine it. Another way in which I started reimagining homework a few years ago happened when I was teaching a class on Bonhoeffer, the German theologian that I mentioned the other day. Um, I'm not sure what Australians call him. Um, in North America, he's Bonhoeffer, uh, but uh, in Germany, he's Bonhoeffer. So at the start of his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer said, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. And he's writing this in the context of his government just having said that Jewish people can't hold church office in the German state church. And Bonhoeffer was one of the early figures to, to realize that that was heretical. Uh, that, in fact, the basis for being in the Christian community is not ethnicity. It's not having the right politics. It's not um, which club you belong to. It's, it's whether Christ died for you. And uh, so I was wondering how to teach this to my students, because Bonhoeffer then goes on to say, like, a practical implication of this is you ought to be thankful for the other people that God has placed in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. Because when God chose those people to put them in the body of Christ, he didn't come and consult your tastes first. You didn't get a vote. And you spend way too much time grumbling about the other Christians who aren't quite the way you want them to be instead of being thankful that God took other people and placed them in the kingdom of God with you. That's a privilege. So this is where Bonhoeffer's trying to get to. I thought, how do I teach this to my students? So I had them read Bonhoeffer, and I had them do some background study and so on, did all the conventional things. But I started thinking about how my homework assignments could include some practices that my students could engage in to help them try to figure out what Bonhoeffer was talking about. So in the first week, I asked my students to think of a person they saw every day, or almost every day. I said, think of a person you see at least five days out of seven. Another student in your class, somebody who lives in your dorm, somebody who works in the place where you get lunch. I don't, I don't care. Somebody who you interact with, if possible, choose someone who irritates you. Um, choose someone you wouldn't choose to hang out with at the weekend. And all, you want, all I want you to do is every time you see this person, use it as a mental trigger and just pause and thank God for their life for one minute. You can pray a blessing on them. You may not pray that they will change. That's cheating. All you've got to do is be thankful and bless. After seven days of doing that, we came back to class the next week, and one of my students wrote in their journal, there's a student with whom I'm not on friendly terms. We don't fight, but when we're together, it can be a bit awkward. Over the course of the last few days, I've prayed for this student. The more I prayed for him, the more I found I could stand him. Now I don't find it a problem seeing him around campus. We're not best friends, but I believe that things have improved between us. Just seven days of a one-minute-a-day practice, and my students started realizing that they had some responsibility for the ways that they responded to the people around them, that it's not just fate that God puts too many stupid people in the world, um, that there is some accountability for your actions, and you can work on that through disciplines like thankfulness and blessing others. It hadn't really occurred to me before this course that homework didn't have to be read something, write something, research something. It could be try out this practice for a week and reflect on it and come back prepared to talk about it. The following week, I asked students to continue a, a modified version of this. I said, this time, choose someone you see every day, but it has to be someone whose name you don't know. Someone who's in your environment, you see them, but you've got no idea who they are. And all I want you to do is pray for that person for a minute a day for a week. When students came back to class a week later, they started sharing how they'd realized through this practice 
that a lot of the time when it looks like we're praying for other people, we're secretly praying for ourselves. So students started giving me examples. You know, if I pray for my parents to be blessed financially, it really helps me with paying tuition. If I pray for my girlfriend to have a good day, it makes my evening conversation with her way more personable if it's answered. I shared with them that reading Bonhoeffer had convicted me that if I searched my own heart, at least some of the time when I prayed for things to go well with my children, it was less because of a deep investment in the ultimate well-being of my children than because I didn't want to be a parent of children who were having problems. So a student wrote in a journal after a week of doing this, I learned that it's a humbling experience to pray for someone you don't know. I have to be totally selfless because I get nothing from the transaction. This other, this nameless other, will be more important than I, but I feel better when I'm not so self-centered. It directs my attention more to God and his big world and not so much to myself. Then my problems and life are not so important and that frees me. If I'm not so important, my mistakes are not so important. I'm not the center. I'm not as alone. What an interesting thing to learn from homework in German class. So homework. Do we know how to do homework, really? Or is that something we could reimagine? There's other boring stuff. Worksheets, assignments, telling students to answer 10 questions or read to page 17 by tomorrow or whatever it is, just giving students stuff to get through. This can be part of homework. Sometimes it's in class as well. Again, the technology project, the Digital Life Together book, um, one of the things we talked to students about and gathered some evidence around was to what degree they sensed that working with digital devices was encouraging them to read superficially, to skim, to Google answers without understanding them. And in fact, a lot of students said to us, that's exactly what's happening. We can Google answers and copy and paste them into the worksheet without having any idea what the words mean. And uh, so it's providing ways of providing what the teacher wants, which is the answers to the questions, without actually learning or deeply engaging with the material. And we found that some pretty disastrous things were going on when teachers were trying to use technology with learning activities that were basically designed for information retrieval. So one day we're talking to some students in a focus group and a student said this, we'll ask our teachers, can we just skim through for the answers? And they'll say, no, I actually want you to read it. And like one of my teachers did that and I diligently read it and took notes because I just do that. And I know a lot of people did because he actually emphasized that it's important to read it. Whereas most teachers I get, I kind of skim it and look for the answers. In other classes, they just say, here's your reading assignment, and then fill out the worksheet. And it's easy to do Apple F and find where the answers are to each of the questions. Now, let's just stop and look a little more closely here, because this, this little paragraph of student talk started fascinating me. Because there's a student the story wants us to buy that's not true. So the student starts out saying, they'll say, my teachers in general tell me, no, I actually want you to read it, because teachers care about reading. And I diligently read it and took notes because I just do that. I'm a good student. I'm a fine, upstanding person who always diligently does what my teachers ask me to do. It's a nice story, but the rest of the paragraph shows us that it's not true. Because in the same paragraph, the student says, one of my teachers emphasized how I should read this. Most teachers I get, they just say, here's your reading assignment. Right, so apparently, no, it's not teachers in general that say this. Most of them just give me a worksheet and say, get up to question 10. Right. And actually, I don't just read diligently because usually most teachers I get, I kind of skim it. 
<laughs> Most of the time, I actually don't read carefully. Most of the time, I just skim and I look for the answers and I do Apple F. But some of the time, sometimes, I turn into this good, diligent student who actually reads it carefully. Now, what was the profound pedagogical technique that led me to change into being a diligent student who read it carefully? Well, because he actually emphasized what the point of the activity was. <laughs> Here's my hot tip for you. If you explain to your students why you're doing what you're doing with them, they might understand why they're doing it, and they might actually engage you in doing it the way you want them to do it. There's a decent chance. I was impressed over and over again in our focus groups by how much these students are listening to their teachers, but also with how much their teachers are not explaining to them why they are supposed to be learning the thing that they're learning right now. Think back to the student I mentioned on the first morning who was doing the painting and could tell me why. Are you able, when you assign a learning activity, are you able to articulate to your student how you hope they're going to grow by engaging in this learning activity? Are you telling them this is an important piece of text? If you skim through it and look for the answers, you're not going to get the benefit, right? Because there's some ideas in here we need to wrestle with. And the way I want you to grow is to actually slow down and engage with these ideas, maybe read it a couple of times and think about it, because these are important things we need to wrestle with, and we're not going to be able to wrestle with it together in class tomorrow if you just skim read it and get five answers. Or are you implicitly sending the message that what you really want is for students to get five answers? We found that a lot of students were picking up the message from their teachers that what teachers really cared about deep down was task completion. That what their teachers really wanted from them was to get through 30 pages by Tuesday. What their teachers really wanted was for them to make sure they answered 10 questions. That that was sort of actually the deep desire of the teachers. Now, when that combined with technology, students were starting to internalize the message that if what my teacher wants is for me to get to question 10, and if the fact that I own a laptop and the assignment is on Moodle means that I could do that at 11 o'clock tonight, I'm totally justified in playing games for half an hour now in class. Because if the purpose of the game is to complete the task, then as long as I complete the task, I've fulfilled all righteousness. I've done what the teacher wanted from me. So if the message that the student's getting is that what matters is that the task finishes, they start bypassing the learning processes that might have been behind the task in the first place. So how about reading? Here's another boring thing that we do every day. We ask students to read stuff. Read chapter two, read this short story, read this poem, read this worksheet. How often do we tell them how to read? Do we think reading is just decoding? When I was teaching Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer emphasizes um, Lectio Continua, which is the ancient Christian practice of reading chapter two after chapter one and before chapter three. Right? We, people don't do that anymore. They go for a verse out of Daniel and a verse out of Matthew and a verse out of, right? Um, but you're actually supposed to read sequentially, right? You're supposed to read large chunks and keep going. That's what lectionaries are for. And uh, so, again, Bonhoeffer talks about this in his book that I was teaching in the Bonhoeffer class. And so, again, how do I get students to wrestle with this? How do I build a learning practice that helps my students see the point of learning to read slowly and carefully in large chunks and not just picking out a sentence here and there that you can put in as quotes in your essay so that you can get an A? So what I decided to do was I brought a worksheet to class that looked like this one. It was a sheet of paper with a blank space at the top and the bottom and in the middle a passage out of Mark, uh, chapter 13. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance 
but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I put my students into groups of three, and I gave them 10 minutes to discuss this passage. And I said, I want you to imagine that you've been asked to lead chapel tomorrow morning, and you've been asked to give a five-minute homily about this passage. And I don't need the entire outline of your entire preach, but I want to know what the punchline is. I want to know what the takeaway is. What message are you going to emphasize if you were given this passage to preach to the school community about for five minutes? The first time I did this, I had eight groups of students in the class. Seven of them came up with the same answer with slightly different wording. So apparently we had a shared reading of this passage. They said, we don't give enough. We tend to give a few dollars that are left over at the bottom of our pocket. This widow, she really dug deep into her substance. She gave sacrificially. Um, she gave out of the stuff she needed. She didn't just give a few leftover bits and pieces. She was, she was so committed to God. We need to be like her. We need to learn to dig deep, be radical, give, superficial, give sacrificially, not superficially. That was going to be their, their message. So I said, okay. We talked about that for a few minutes, looked at the passage. Then I paused them, and I gave them a second version of the worksheet, and all I did was, was add two or three verses in each direction, just make the passage a little bit longer. Now, notice here we've now got three paragraphs that start with and, so they sure look like they go together, even though there's a chapter division halfway through this passage, because the chapters are all in the wrong places. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So the first little chunk here says, beware of religious leaders who take money from widows because they will be condemned. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, look, there's something to learn here, right? And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This was money she needed for food. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Look what we've been able to build with the offerings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. So suddenly it looks like we've got a sequence that starts off saying, beware of religious leaders who take money from widows because they will be condemned. Then Jesus points out a poor widow giving her last two coins to the temple hierarchy. And then the disciples say, how wonderful is the temple? And Jesus says, God's going to destroy it. And so I said to my students, do you want some time to reconsider your homily before we go live? And they thought that maybe they'd at least like to talk about it again. Now, there's places to go from here because there's some debate in the commentaries about how to read this passage. That's not where I'm headed. You can go do some investigating later and decide how to read this passage. Uh, I was trying to open up the question of how you interpret a passage of Scripture. And what stayed with me out of this sequence that one of my students got very angry in this class and stayed angry for a couple of weeks. She said, I've been a Christian since I was this high. She said, I've been to Christian school. I've been to church. I've been to Sunday school. I've been on youth retreats. I've been on um, youth camps. I've led Sunday school. Why did nobody ever show me that unless I read long joined up passages, I've got a pretty poor chance of knowing what on earth Jesus was trying to say. She said, ever since I've been little, what I've been given is verses. I've been given a sermon based on four verses. I've been given verses to memorize. I've been asked what my life verse is. I've been on retreats with a theme verse. 
How come nobody ever helped me to see that if you don't, if you don't actually read it joined up, you, you might not even know what Jesus was trying to, trying to say? In her journal that week, she wrote, I don't often read the Bible because it intimidates me. I especially avoid the Old Testament because it's particularly intimidating. This is a very engaged Christian student, very involved in her church, involved in Christian ministries, admitting that she doesn't actually read the Bible because she can't quite put it together and figure out what it means, and that's scary. The next week she wrote, I've already said I don't like reading the Old Testament because I can't interpret it, but reading large sections of it really helped me see the overarching picture. She started to discover that if you read whole sections sequentially, it started kind of making sense. At the end of the semester, she wrote, when reading the Bible, I must receive better without fear and trust that it does not have a bad meaning if it's not immediately meaningful to me. I should continue to read whole parts of the Bible together with my friends. That's something I can practice during the summer and next year in my house. A year later, after she graduated from college, she sent me an email saying, I don't know if you remember being in my class. It's funny how the students you're never going to forget write that in their emails. And uh, she said, but I'm still thinking about that discussion we had about how to read the Bible. Do you have any more reading plans that I could try because I'm still, I'm still working on this? It left me with this question. When you use the Bible in your school, whether it's in class, whether it's in chapel, whether it's in devotions, one question we can ask is what theology you're teaching and whether you chose the right passage and whether you interpreted it well and whether students are getting a Christian worldview and so on. But there's another question we can ask, which is what manner of reading scripture are you modeling for your students? What are they implicitly learning about the practice of reading and how to read and how to come to a deep understanding? A few years before that, I taught a literature class, German literature class, capstone course. And I don't have time to talk about the whole class, but what I tried to do for a semester was build the whole semester around charitable reading practices. So what I wanted to teach my students for the whole semester was to wrestle with the question of how, as a Christian, do you take a text that somebody else invested a chunk of their life in and read it with charity, with humility, not deciding on page three that the author's an idiot, right? with justice, not misrepresenting what the author says because it lets you score a quick Christian point, patience, letting it unfold. What Christian virtues are meant to come to bear in the act of reading the work of your neighbor's hands? And so we spent the semester practicing reading the same text more than once, not just reading it and completing the assignment and moving on, but reading it, discussing it, and going back and reading it again. We experimented with different, different postures for reading. What happens if you read this poem sitting down, standing up, or with your feet on the table? Does it change your attentiveness? I mentioned on the first morning, we shared each other's interpretations of poems and looked at how each other had been reading things to see what we've missed. So in lots of different ways throughout the semester, I tried to build in lots of layers of practices that were trying to help my students thinking about how to read and how that related to growing in Christian virtues. In the last week of the semester, one of my students wrote this in her journal. Not long ago, I took reading Christianly and applied it to the way I read people. I noticed myself casting rash judgments on people without understanding them, knowing their backgrounds, or even talking to them. I think especially because of the focus in this class to read Christianly, I tried to change this bad habit. I had an opportunity to practice reading people Christianly only this past weekend. A middle-aged man from out of town came in to the coffee shop where she was working in search of a computer. He claimed he'd been wandering around Grand Rapids for the past two days in search of his sister, who he only knew lived somewhere near Kentwood. He didn't have a phone number and needed to look it up online in an email because she was unlisted. 
The coffee shop doesn't have computers, though, only internet service. My coworker wanted to get him out. She thought he was off his rocker. But I talked to him for a little while, and upon hearing he hadn't eaten in at least a day, gave him a sandwich and a cup of coffee, and told him he could ask one of our customers to use their computer. One gentleman was kind enough to let him, so he got on and couldn't find her number, but left a message for her to come and pick him up. He'd be waiting. Having been in a similar situation once myself, lost in Germany, I was sensitive to his needs and feeling of exhaustion and helplessness. I took my own experience and related it to his. And because of my Christianity, I asked myself over and over what the right thing to do would be. Like skimming over a text leaves one unsatisfied and does an injustice to text and author. I was not at peace having briefly met this man to leave him out on the street for the night. That is an incredible sentence. Listen to that sentence again. Like skimming over a text leaves one unsatisfied and does an injustice to text and author. I was not at peace having briefly met this man to leave him out on the street for the night. This is a student realizing that the way she's being trained to read texts has something to do with the way she reads people. And that has something to do with the way she reacts when a homeless person comes into her coffee shop. I had to go back with a male friend, if only to keep him company for a short while, but possibly to bring him somewhere to spend the night. In this way, I believe allowing time to get to know a work or person, realizing from what sort of framework we're looking at it, and doing so lovingly, this is how we should read Christianly. What reading practices do your students experience when you ask them to read things? How does it help their Christian formation? How do you articulate that to them? Here's another boring thing, email. <sighs> Email's stressful. Um, I realized the other day that my inbox is just about to pass 40,000 messages. So my chance of reaching inbox zero is pretty much zero. Um, during semester, I run 100 plus a day. So that's after I filtered out the spam. So email is a thing that a lot of us are struggling with. And one of the things technology has done is change the way we communicate. And so when we were doing our technology study, we studied this part of what was going on in schools as well. And what we found was a significant increase in the stresses on teachers because of the community's communication practices. So we heard teachers telling us stories about parents emailing them at 11 o'clock at night and meeting them at the school gate at 8 o'clock the next morning, wondering whether they had done something yet about the thing they emailed the teacher about. So we're starting to see parents unconsciously, they've not thought this through, right, because they're trying to figure out technology as well, engaging in behaviors that imply that a teacher is at work 24-7. There is never a time when you're not a teacher. We heard teachers talking about parents emailing their children during class to tell the teacher that they'll be picking up, emailing the teacher during class to tell them they'll be picking up their child in 10, 15 minutes. Apparently with the expectation that while the teacher is teaching high school math, they're also checking email every 30 seconds to see if the parents are in touch. And in fact, I'm a teacher educator. I get to spend a fair bit of time sitting at the back of other people's classrooms. I'm starting to see schools in Grand Rapids where teachers are teaching a five, 10 minute segment and then giving, school, giving students some stuff to discuss in groups and they've got a laptop open on the stand at the front of the classroom and they go in checking email and keeping up with whether the person who didn't show up has sent a message and so on. Teaching's hard enough when you're paying attention. Right? And yet we're starting to build practices where teachers are only half present in their classroom because they're supposed to be paying attention for, to all these messages from parents. One parent described walking into a room of their house and finding their child sitting, staring at a laptop screen, doing nothing. And they asked the child what they were doing, and the student said, well, I got stuck on my homework, so I just emailed the teacher to ask a question. I'm waiting for a reply. 
Students have started to think that their teachers are like tech support people on websites, right? Um, now, here's the interesting thing. As we tried to study this, one of the things we found was that what was not working was letting each teacher try to figure this out on their own. Because the dynamic that that was creating was, if you teach in a Christian school, you're probably conscientious. You probably want the best for your students, and you probably are motivated by ideas like service and self-sacrifice. That means you are wired to try to do too much of this, to try to meet every demand that's placed on you, to try to keep every parent happy, and to try to meet every need of every student, which means you're going to try to answer those emails that come in 11 o'clock at night. And then we've got teachers telling us that this is putting pressure on their marriages in our focus groups. So when the school hadn't addressed this, it was creating a culture in which there was constant pressure towards the most heroic model. Because everybody assumed that everybody else was doing better at it than they were. And that they were the only person who wasn't quite keeping up. So we started thinking, you know, a practice this school ought to engage in is to actually sit down together and decide what the norms are going to be around email and then work to communicate those to the whole community. Have a meeting with all the parents at the start of the school year and saying, Teachers will not answer emails during teaching hours because we're focused on helping your children learn. If it's an emergency, you can contact the office. We'll triage it. If you've got a question, we'll try to get back to you in 48 hours. And just set some realistic expectations instead of driving good teachers into the ground and damaging their relationships, trying to keep up with a model that is never going to work. Again, if we don't reimagine that practice, it's going to harm our health. And it's not going to help our students. One teacher said, technology does a lot of things, really great things. One of the things that's maybe a negative is it allows us to go faster and to do more. I've kind of noticed with my students, I want to back off on that avenue a little bit. I don't always want to go faster. I don't always want to get through more of the Bible. Sometimes I want to slow down and engage one part of the Bible really well. And to be slow and to relieve some of the pressure of school. We saw this teacher designing learning activities for his classroom that encouraged students to slow down, to reread, to not try to get to the end of the passage to reflect, to use silence, to take notes with a pencil. Boring stuff. The green fluorescent protein is really exciting. It also happens six times out of 479. Most of the rest of it is homework, emails, reading assignments, worksheets, get this done by Tuesday. That's where a lot of the formation happens. What if we reimagined that stuff? What if you took one of those boring things and started to question whether it's really serving the mission of your school to do the boring bit in the boring way that we currently do the boring bit? Is there another boring way to do it that's actually more wholesome, that's actually closer to the gospel, that's actually a little bit closer to our vision? So what concrete practice are you going to reimagine and take back to your school next week? And, and not live through the post-conference, I'm not thinking about big ideas, and I'm not with all these exciting people anymore, but to knuckle back down to, what should the homework assignment be for next Thursday? And how could it change something? What am I going to say to my students the next time I ask them to read something? What norms am I going to communicate to my community about how we communicate? How am I going to help my students to slow down? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all. Not just the green fluorescent protein bits. In the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And I don't think that means say in the name of the Lord Jesus after you do things. Um, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I've got two minutes to tell you about a couple of things just to keep us connected. I work at the Kaiser Institute. Pedagogy.net is our website. We try to give away as much of our work as possible. You will find links there to a range of curriculum-related projects, online resources, examples of other teachers connecting faith to their teaching, the What If Learning website with 100 examples, the Teach Fastly website with another couple of hundred examples. It's all free. Take it away and use it. See if it's helpful. It's not meant to be the final answer. It's meant to provoke you. It's intended to give you what other people have done to bounce off of to see if you might do it differently. Go explore. OnChristianTeaching.com. Just started this a few months ago. Um, this is my website. This is me trying to get my stuff together in one place so it's easy for people to find. So gradually I'm throwing up here all the articles and interviews and talks and so on that I've done. So if there's anything there that's useful, again, it's free. Take it. Use it. And Facebook.com slash OnChristianTeaching. That's where I'm posting updates. Um, I'm not a big Facebook person, but I just started a professional Facebook page just to kind of push out when we're adding new stuff to the website so that there's a low-key way for people to keep in touch and find out when something new is happening. So some people have been asking how to keep up to date with things like the assessment project that I talked about in a strand session the other day. Um, if you want to just generally keep in touch with what's going on in my part of the world, um, those three addresses between you will point you to most things, uh, and you can find some, uh, find some things there that might be useful to you. Um, so I really hope you go back from, I hope this has been inspiring. It's good to be inspired every now and then. I'm not totally against inspiration. Um, but I also kind of hope you just go back and change something routine so that it becomes a little window into the kingdom of God. Thank you so much for listening.